I was thinking if I could start by just asking a few questions about the book Tribe, because I read it recently, I absolutely love it. And then we'll see where we go from there. And if we maybe get into talking a bit about social media or technology or the podcast being techno-social, we'll just see how it ends up. How does that sound? Good. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that one of the things that I'd like to know is Tribe, Tribe really stuck with me, being about how, I guess... There seems to be something that we don't have in society as we live in the moment that people feel they perhaps experience in, in war zones or disaster zones. Uh, something that perhaps brings them together in a way that we don't have now. Wondering when it was you first started to realize these things that became the book. Yeah, I mean, we're social primates and we're not designed to survive alone in nature, we die pretty quickly. Uh, we survive in groups. Modern society has figured out how to push away most of the immediate threats to our existence. Uh, we buy our food at the supermarket, we're not threatened by enemies, by forest fires, by whatever. Like most of the threats to our lives are um, quite removed from our daily experience, which means we don't need the group to survive. And so mod people in modern society have gotten used to this idea that like they're fine, they don't need the people around them in their neighborhood to get through to the next day. As soon as you have a crisis, it's very clear that without your neighbors or without whatever, some kind of collaborative uh, effort, collaborative organization, everyone's screwed and people come together very naturally. It's a survival instinct. And the irony is that the more you focus on being a good group member, the more you personally benefit. When you focus just on your own needs, you're actually putting yourself in greater danger. That's the sort of irony, the weird irony of altruism. So uh, the ideas for the book came to me. You know, I was with American soldiers in combat for quite a while, and I was, I was amazed that uh, so many of them were reluctant to return to the United States, that they wanted to go back into combat they're based in Italy and they didn't want to come home. They wanted to go back into combat after a brutal deployment. And I, you know, I wonder what that was about. And I, and I, as I looked into it, it seemed like it was about their fear of being alone, that, that, that you get used to being in a platoon in combat and then suddenly being in physical safety, you know, in the great American suburb, uh, maybe your life's not in danger, but it, but the alienation is so intense that it actually feels more threatening than combat does when you're with your guys. And mm. the irony of that really made me start to think about what we are as a species and how our inclusion in a group is probably the most vital uh, fact of our existence. Mm, there's, I think you write about it a bit, the sense that even on a kind of genetic makeup our ancestors were presumably selected to be the ones who could work together the best who could cooperate and not go off and screw everybody else which makes it being alone in the way we are now it's kind of just going against who we are on a molecular level even now, and I wonder, uh, living in a big city like London myself now, and it's so many people packed into a place where people hardly even speak to each other. You know, the fact that you can commute on the underground train in the morning, surrounded by 
hundreds of people with him. You don't make on eye contact. In fact, making eye contact is kind of a sin, especially if you make it for longer than a couple of seconds. It's bizarre. Well, there's a lot of social avoidance because, I mean, primates don't like to be packed together. I mean, chimpanzees don't, humans don't. It, it, it triggers our, you know, can trigger some real anxiety. So when you're packed into a small space with people you don't know, there's a lot of, um, you know, gaze avoidance. People make themselves small. Uh, they do everything to signal that, like, that they, they don't want to be part of your world and you don't want them to be part of yours, which is, which is all adaptive and sort of makes sense. If there was suddenly an emergency, right, if that, if that subway, if that underground train was stopped because there was a fire on the tracks or I don't know, whatever, um, and you guys were stuck in that car long enough, where you would start to see as a kind of um, a communality take, take place. The people that were having physical trouble would be put into seats, and if anyone had any water, they'd be, you know, I mean, they, they, it, would be start, it would start to function as a group, uh, because that's what humans do to survive. And so you think about it, the, the people act the best in the worst circumstances. Mm. What you have, if, if antisocial behavior dominated during the worst circumstances, everyone would die. Basically, what we have is that when circumstances are really difficult, pro-social behavior comes to the fore. And you know, clearly, the people that acted well in bad circumstances were the ones who were more successful at passing on their genetics. And so that's sort of what's encoded in our thinking culturally, genetically, uh, it can't be otherwise. If, 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 if life-threatening circumstances brought about antisocial behavior, we know we're safest when we work in a group. Antisocial behavior tears the group apart. So people that act like that in a crisis are setting themselves up for failure in Darwinian terms are not probably not going to pass on their, their genes as effectively. Mm. You know, another point that really struck me in the book was about the ability of the small communities that we would used to have lived in to also be able to identify the people who were, say, freeloading or cheating or ripping off the collective and be able to do something quite efficient about that, which, again, we seem to have lost now, like a great example being, you know, the, the financial crisis, I suppose, those guys who who caused that as far as I know, it's still just a way doing what they're doing. And I feel within myself, there's something quite frustrating about being disempowered on that level. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes being part of modern society, which has so many benefits. I mean, let's mm. not forget the enormous benefits that come with it, but there, it's important to recognize the shortcomings. And one of them is that it sort of feels like powerful people can do what they want and that they're almost kind of above the law. You know, not entirely, though. I mean, um, you know, there are, you know, the, you know, the Weinsteins and the Epsteins of the world uh, who have done terrible things and are now facing legal consequences. But, you know, it's easier to game the system if you're wealthy. And we all know that. And in a small scale society, what's the equivalent of the financial crisis, the 2008 financial crisis for a small scale society? That would be, uh, you know, a situation where a few powerful males stole and kept for themselves a fair chunk of the group's resources, right? Like a fair amount of the food that was set aside to get the people through the winter. You know, they took, I don't know, 20% of that and hid it for themselves. People that got caught doing that on a life raft 
or in a, you know, in, 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 the, in the Arctic, you know, like, um, or the Shackleton, Shackleton expedition or whatever, like any of those situations where people really depend on each other. You, you, a few guys take away 20% of the group's resources and hide them for their own use. Those guys are overboard immediately, right? Those guys are shunned, they're disciplined, they're killed, they're banished, whatever it is. But small groups of people take care of that problem extremely efficiently because it's a threat to the survival of the entire group. Uh, it, it's, a, it's the ultimate sin is to jeopardize the, the group with your own greed. I mean, that's the ultimate human sin. Mm. Yeah, and you know, you also write about the state of people's mental health in the modern world. And I guess, how does that kind of tie in with this? Well, just very, very broadly, uh, as wealth goes up in a society, um, the suicide rate tends to go up. Uh, the depression rate tends to go up. The PTSD rate tends to go up. Uh, so, which is ironic because the, the the affluence of the West has brought many, many good things. You would think that, along with those good things, leisure time, et cetera, et cetera, along with those convenience, uh, the physical sort of ease of, of of living. You don't have to walk ten miles a day hunting antelope to survive. Like I mean, you know, a lot of people make their whole living sitting at their desk pretty easy right so you would think that with all those benefits people people would be um happier they, they they would be less prone to depression and suicide the opposite is true and i you know i can't prove this but my hunch is my guess is that one of the one of the most powerful buffers against suicide and depression are feeling needed by your group so as affluence rises the group group is less and less necessary um and uh, so you're not needed by your group because there aren't any groups. And, and then at that point, you're at an increased risk of depression and suicide. Mm. There's something meaningful about being engaged with other people in meaningful activity. And I suppose what could be more meaningful than working with your brothers and sisters to actually get the food that you need to survive. And if you don't that day, then you're gonna die. Yeah, I mean, survival is the most meaningful work there is, of course. And, and so mm. you're never in a situation where you have to contribute to the immediate survival of the group. That's a great liberation from the harsh realities of the natural world, don't get me wrong, but there is a downside. And the downside is you're never quite sure what your place in the world is, what the point of life is, what your place in the group is. You're never quite sure of those things. Mm. So what do you think is going on with social media where it gives us a sort of sense of belonging in groups, perhaps even many groups. I can be a part of any number of Reddit forums or Facebook groups and be posting with people who supposedly I have a lot in, in, in common with, but don't see face to face. Well, that's exactly the problem with it is it gives you the sense of belonging to a group and you don't, you're not. Mm. Um, their analog communication changes important parts of the brain, right? Like when we are in face-to-face -face conversation with other people, certain parts of, and I, I can't remember the name, but for certain, certain important parts of our brain light up. When you are exchanging information online, it's not analog, it's just information. You might as well be playing computer chess. Your brain doesn't know you're in communication with another person when you're doing that. It, it, it thinks you're playing computer chess or whatever. It does not know that you're having a connected human experience. So those parts of the brain are not getting lit up. They're not getting stimulated. Uh, those human needs are not being satisfied. 
there's a great exchange of information, even personal information online, which is wonderful. Uh, but the actual human experience um, of being in relation to another person actually does not happen through bits and through data and through screens. It cannot happen. Neurologically, it doesn't happen. Uh, you, it, even a telephone call will affect the brain in different ways than a, um, and what we're doing right now, of course, it, it, ha it, ha it feels a little bit more like a real human communication. Um, texting is just data, right? There's no mm. real human connection there. Uh, posting stuff on Facebook and getting a bunch of thumbs up is completely meaningless uh, in, in human terms compared to being in a group and having the group say, wow, that was awesome. Let me give you a hug. I mean, that, that changes your, um, uh, that hormonally and neurologically, that's a completely different experience from getting like one of these on Facebook. And, uh, you know, as one psychologist explained, it's not that that stuff is harmful. It's not that social media is actually harmful. But if it takes the place of real, rela real human relations, you know, it's like eating junk food. It's, 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 it's not that having a cheeseburger is actually bad for you. But the problem is it makes it feel like you've had a meal. So you, mm. if you eat a cheeseburger and some french fries, you won't have a real meal that has real nutrition in it. You'll th you think you're full, right? Likewise with social media, you think you've had a human experience. So you won't go get a real human experience from your neighbor uh, physically who lives next door to you. Uh, and that, and that's, that begins the sort of like starvation diet of social media that psychologists are starting to think lead to increased risks of suicide and depression, particularly young people, and particularly in teenage girls that seem to be particularly vulnerable to that. Mm. I remember you saying in one of our kind of earlier correspondences that you, you don't use a smartphone, do you? You still flip phoning it out. Yeah, do you know, I... I had a brick for a very long time and then I got a smartphone about a year ago, but then it's like, it's bizarre because once you get it, it's like, ah, this thing is useful, but I know I don't need it. And yet it's, well, you know, I outsource so much to it, which is something I'm very cognizant of, like yeah. letting the map, the artificial map thing do my thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I have email, I, you know, I have a laptop at home, I, you know, I'm connected to the internet when I'm at home at my desk, but I, I don't, you know, and the internet's an amazing thing. I mean, all of human knowledge, thousands of years of human knowledge are available to every person at any moment. That's amazing, right? There's nothing bad about that, right? But I don't need all of that in my front pocket all the time. And the problem is people, the way people use their smartphone, a lot of it is to engage socially with other people to the exclude and sometimes often to the exclusion of the people around them. Right. So the, 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 I, I would offer the sort of evidence that it's an, that, that, that the smartphone is deeply antisocial is because people will ignore, you'll see people ignoring the people around them, even people they know and care about to engage with someone who's not there. Mm. Two bits of data, right? That's clearly antisocial behavior. If they were doing that with a book, you would say that person's being antisocial. They're at the dinner table, surrounded by their best friends, and they're reading a Hemingway novel. Like, what are they doing? Like, that's that's antisocial, right? It's no mm. less antisocial because it's a phone. The other thing I would say is that if the the uh, if the if the human interactions 
were equally valuable online or in person. If that were true, it's not true, but if it were true, we would never need to go to another wedding. We'd never need to go to another funeral, another graduation, another birthday party. You could live stream everything. It'll be exactly the same. But clearly we know that emo in emotional human terms, not being in the chapel at the wedding of your best friends, it, there's a loss there. I don't care if you're live streaming it, right? And we all know that that's true. So don't tell me, I'm not saying you, but I hear this from other people, like, don't tell me that it's the same damn thing. We all know it's not. Mm. So what is it about these social rituals that are so meaningful for us? Well, we're a social species and uh, touch and smell and, and close proximity, you know, all make us feel, I mean, you know, from any infant, I mean, infants are terrified of being alone for good reason, right? I mean, an infant alone is, is somebody's lunch in the jungle, right? I mean, they all, it's all wired. They know that. Like, I mean, you put a baby in a room by itself and turn out the light and they'll scream and scream and scream because they know they're in danger, right? So that's wired into all of us. We get our sense of security, physical security, and by extension, our emotional security from the proximity of others. So, and particularly if, if we're in circumstances that are emotional, that have music, that have dance, that have touching and hugging, like those are the things that make us feel like, okay, I'm part of something bigger than myself. Uh, I, I, I am in this group of people that I care about, people that I love. I might not even like them, but I love them. You know, my cousin, right? In fact, I hate talking to him, but he's my cousin, he's family, right? Or my friend or my friend's wife or whatever. Like, God forbid, I have to talk to Susie all night, but you know what? She's married to my best friend we're all, we're all, this is my people, right? You know, and so you don't even have to like them, but the sense of being, this is part of a group and we are now together doing this important thing. That's what makes people feel like they're not alone in the universe. And mm. that's in existential terms and psychological, emotional terms. That's a very, very important illusion that we're not alone in the universe. Yeah. You know, one of the passages that really struck me from the book was, I believe it's about, tribal culture where the warriors go off to war and when they get back there's quite an elaborate ceremony for reintegrating them i can't remember what the name is but that's fascinating right? and it go ahead and it like it really seems to it assists in their reintegration like the soldiers coming back from war where they may have seen or been involved in some pretty horrific stuff but the whole community is able to come together and recognize it as being like, this is that thing that happened there and we're going to share in it. Yeah. And so now you're back with us. Well, in a small scale society, anything that anyone does, uh, and, uh, anything of that sort um, is an expression of the group will and, and, and the group has moral responsibility for it. And the outcome is very important to the group. So if you go, you know, if you, um, if you go off to fight an enemy that's an existential threat to your group, you are acting on behalf of the whole group. If you kill, it's traumatic to kill people, even to kill people righteously, right? I mean, right by that, I mean in defense of your family and your, and your friends. Uh, even that's traumatic. And if you can come back, it's called the Gourd Dance. And there were, there were a number of native tribes in the, in the South Central Plains of the United States that had this ceremony where warriors would come back and they would have this sort of, they would dance and sing and act out and retell their exploits in the battlefield. You know, most of it was them sort of like 
pumping their fists saying how badass they are, you know, but it, but it allowed, you know, basically allowed the community to understand and take owner, moral ownership of what the young men, it was exclusively young men, did uh, uh, on the battlefield to defend, to defend the group. Um, the threat of outsiders is very intense for humans. If there's, re you know, competition over resources um, leads to fighting between human groups. The, the entire male population of, Iber of the Iberian Peninsula was wiped out by outsiders 5,000 years ago. I mean, think about that. Like, outsiders came in from the Russian steppe on chariots and slaughtered all the males of the entire Iberian Peninsula and mated with all the females. And so now the DNA in Iberia is from the invaders, right? Those guys were not able to successfully defend their homes, their women, their families, their people, their communities. They lost, right? So that, that threat of outsiders coming to attack you is very real in human history. And if you don't help the young males who, who conduct the defense of the group, if you don't help them emotionally, psychologically process the trauma of combat, they're just going to be less effective the next time around. So it was a very, very important thing to do. Mm. And I guess that's something that we have to a much lesser extent here with people coming back from, from fighting. I mean, I guess there's still some kind of parades, I would imagine, for soldiers returning. I really don't know. But again, that shows it, right? I don't know. Right. And a parade, there's no emotional expression in a parade. I mean, you don't have soldiers standing up and acting out or singing or, or describing what they did. You just have them marching down the street, right? So there, it actually is not an emotional, uh, uh, it's not a cathartic experience. Mm. It's demonstrative of something, but it's not, it's not emotional, it's not personal. Uh, and it certainly doesn't incorporate any, um, any sort of soul searching um, any exploration of the emotional experience of combat. Mm. With soldiers who you've known who have returned back home to the States, like what have they, what, what have they struggled with? Um, I think they've struggled with having a decrease in the sense of meaning in their lives. Uh, combat's very meaningful. Mm. Um, by that, I mean the consequences are life and death, which is the most meaningful thing there is. So if you're a machine gunner in a platoon in combat, your job is to keep the bullets flying and protect your brothers, right? And, and that's a meaningful thing, very meaningful thing for a 19-year-old. Then you mm. come back to the United States, and there's nothing that you're doing that has that kind of meaning. So it feels like you've actually had a decline, a decline in importance uh, to your society to your immediate group. And there is no immediate group. You know, make things worse is that there's actually no community around you to defend even, and there's nothing to defend it from. I mean, there's just layers of meaninglessness. Uh, it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard for young people to get a job, veteran or otherwise, to get a, to get a good job. And so, and there's, you know, if, you ha if you're struggling in some way, there's often a government disability paycheck so you face the prospect of actually not quite having to work, thinking that you're super messed up, getting enough of a paycheck that you can kind of get by without working, uh, and you can sink into um, a sort of an excess of self-reflection. Uh, uh, it's called uh, anxious rumination. You know, the more psychologists will tell you that the more you think about yourself, 
the more prone you are to depression. And the mm. thing about a, an emergency is that it gets you out of yourself and now you're active and you're doing something, you're needed by the group, you're, you're focused. Um, the reason that that is good, often good for mental health is it gets people out of their heads. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of soldiers come back and they get, they have a, they have some government benefits. They can't, you know, they can't find a job. They don't need a job. And they, you know, if you want to create a depressed alcoholic, like put them in combat, they'll bring them home and give them enough money so that they don't need to work. Like that's a pretty good way to do it. Do people struggle with the fact that they're increasingly coming back to societies that may be critical of the very wars that they were fighting in? So it's not like the tribes we've just been speaking about yes. where the combat really does feel like an expression of the, necess the necessity for the yeah. group to survive. Like now. If yeah, I, you know, I hear you. I mean, I think during Vietnam, people were openly critical. Now, you know, people have learned, we've learned our lessons. Like you don't send people off to war. I mean, this, the soldiers in Vietnam didn't choose that war, right? That was the government that chose the war. And it was us, the taxpayers who funded it. It wasn't the soldiers problem. So, you know, the, the public, the, 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 um, the anti-war public understood their mistake that they were blaming soldiers for a war that the soldiers were not responsible for. They were just the ones who had to fight it. We learned, we Americans sort of learned that mistake. So now people are very careful to not accuse veterans of fighting a war that someone might feel is unnecessary or moral. That, that ha that's very, very rare. Um, more of a problem is just a sense of disconnect. Like, oh, there's a war going on? Oh, I hadn't realized. You know, that kind of like um, uh, cluelessness by the public. It's a very small, we have a very small army. Uh, the wars are very far away. They don't, right after 9-11, the, the circumstances that, that, that prompted our entry in Afghanistan felt like an existential threat to the United States. 3,000 people died, you know, basically down the street from where I live. Um, that's no longer, that no longer quite feels like the case. Uh, so the wars are kind of abstract. The necessity for them seems kind of abstract. I think what soldiers struggle with is not so much criticism of the war, it's just lack of knowledge of it. And, and no one's really thinking about it because it's not that relevant to their daily lives. Mm. So going back to, I suppose, some of the, the issues with the way we live at the moment, um, what can we do to mitigate it? Is it simple things like just spending more time with people face to face and actually engaging with one another, living closer to friends and family? I mean, I, it's hard to create a community out of people that don't live near you, right? Mm. Like, so you either have to get to know your neighbors or you have to make sure to live amongst friends. One or the other, in order to have a sense of community. Um, it, it helps if it helps if circumstances aren't too easy. You know, I mean, the, the uh, you know, I live in a neighborhood in New York where Hurricane Sandy, you know, really, in it, you know, turned off all the lights south of 34th Street and inundated a lot of New York. And, you know, I, I live in, in a Dominican neighborhood where people speak Spanish mostly and they're, they're a, you know, tight, sort of tight-knit community and people really stuck by each other, you know. So, you know, you don't want to live in an ongoing crisis, but, but, um, I mean, my advice would be uh, throw your throw your smartphone in the ocean, mm -hmm. drive as little as possible. There it goes. Yes, splash. <laughs> you know they're 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 great for skipping. Like the, you can you can skip them like a rock. They'll go like five or six skips. Oh, nice. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, dump your, dump your smartphone, try to drive less, and see if you can forge alliances and friendships in the immediate community around you. Mm. Um, uh, and don't live in a wealthy neighborhood. Wealth is terrible for, the, <laughs> for, for human happiness. I mean, really. Like, mm. the, bigger the, more, the higher the wealth, the bigger the houses, the further apart they are, the more walled off they are. And all of a sudden, everyone's in their own stupid castle and no one has any sense of community. I grew up in a town like that. It's absolutely soul-killing. Yeah, I spent some of my teenage years living in your sort of like, I suppose, dream middle-class neighborhood and really didn't like it there. And then my parents separated and we moved to somewhere that's a bit, I mean, it's still, it's still very nice, but it's not as affluent and I way prefer it here. And I find I get on yeah. with the people here and there's a, like more immigrant communities who I can engage with. It's yeah. great. It seemed like everyone just kind of up on the hill having affairs. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that would be my advice. Get rid of your cell phone. Get rid of your smartphone. Try to not to drive so much, uh, and uh, and and live in a live in a in, in a economically modest neighborhood or poor neighborhood. Mm. I mean, either, you know, whatever. Like, are you optimistic about the future? I mean, we're a pretty resourceful species. Uh, we're really good at um making ourselves miserable and we're uh <laughs> and uh incurring a lot of suffering and we're really good at surviving so i'm not optimistic i i think if there's a, i think the human race has a fair amount of suffering in front of it mm. uh but i also think we'll survive the climate's changing the population's exploding uh, the political winds that are blowing across this world right now are dangerous. Like we, you know, we have, we have some shit in store for us, I think in the next hundred years. Yeah. Uh, but I, I also think we'll survive. We're a really, really resourceful, uh, species, species. We're very tough, incredible ingenuity. Like we're going to figure it out, but it's going to hurt. I think. Mm. Right. That's about half an hour. Okay, yeah, going? I should probably get, get going to the rest of my day. But I'm glad we finally got to talk. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, good luck to you. And I'll, uh, I'll give you a message when it's all together. Tell, tell me, send me a message when you've dumped your split phone in a pond. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a video. Send me a video. My phone in a pond. There you go. I'll live stream it so you yeah. can watch yeah, it I, as I, it goes in. Yes, I'm splashed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. All right. Thank you very much, mate. Yeah, take care. Good luck to you. Bye. In a bit. <laughs>